if you were ever to pause long enough in the routines of life to pose to yourself the philosophical question, um, just what is there in life which I do on my own without help from someone somewhere along the line? And at first, you might think that there are a great many things which you do all by yourself without help from anyone else. And I, and I can see why you would think that. But if we expand that idea of help a little bit, things begin to take on a different look. So let's take brushing our teeth, for instance. I know it's a rather silly example, uh, but it'll serve to make the point. We know, of course, that there are some people who really do need someone to help them to hold the toothbrush or put the toothpaste on it, maybe to do the job for them. But most of us think that that's something we do all by ourselves. But we really wouldn't be dress brushing our teeth if we didn't have the toothbrush or the toothpaste. If someone hadn't worked at a job to get some money to buy those things, and, and then someone had to go to the store to bring those things home from the store. Uh, you might think, uh, I'm single. Maybe that fits you today. I'm single, I earn my own money, and I do my own shopping. Yes, but somebody else made that toothbrush and toothpaste. And someone had to pipe the water into your bathroom in your house, which you most likely didn't build yourself, and none of us, uh, not even dentists, I think, uh, do their own dental work. Or, or you could take something a little bit more uh, complex, for instance. How about uh, someone who's a mathematician? Uh, he or she's thinking, moving into new territory, expressing things mathematically, which haven't been expressed before. Truly groundbreaking work. But if they take a look around, they'll see all those people who went before them, whose shoulders they're standing on, whose work and theories are his or her starting point. You know, even Einstein didn't have a blank slate. Others had gone before him, and without their work, he wouldn't have developed his theories. And others have come, and will come again, who build on his work. It is really very difficult to devise a scenario where someone is really doing all these things by themselves. Even the mountain men of old who sought to live by themselves utterly independently still had to trade for gunpowder and salt if nothing else. About as close as I can get to that scenario is to imagine someone who's dropped off naked on an uninhabited island. And if they survive, well, then maybe we could say that person really is doing everything by themselves. Well, except for whatever knowledge they brought with them that they're able to make use of. Now, I don't suppose any of us would really think that that was the kind of life that we'd like to live. And in all of those examples we just talked about, the help was what we might call passive. Someone else did something which you make up use of in doing whatever it is you need to do. And what I'm doing here is reminding you that you get all sorts of help from all sorts of people every day in your life that you probably never even think of. And then there are those things which you simply cannot do by yourself. You can't do unless someone assists you at it, someone who will actively help help you. And it could be something as simple as rolling a big rock up a hill as complex as making a trip to the moon. So much of what we do requires others to help us. 
if we're to do them well and efficiently, if we're to get anything of significance done. While many of us do have some solitary pursuits, reading novels or maybe doing crossword puzzles, uh, they usually aren't community events, are they? Most of us probably do think that a life worth living is a life lived with other people. And giving and getting help is just part of being alive. And yet we're so dependent on so many people for so many different things, we hardly ever even give it a thought. Because, you know, God has designed life so that we cannot really live it alone. We need help. He's built it into the very fabric of nature. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to the spiritual realm, which is, let me say, the basis of all reality, we can even say it is ultimate reality. Everything else has come from that spiritual realm and is moving towards it. And even there, and especially there, we need help. And you know, there are at least two things in our human experience that we cannot do for ourselves, which we absolutely need someone to intervene in. And not just anyone can do these things. We need God, and only God will do. We need God to do something for us in these two things. He needs to do it. And the two things are salvation and living the Christian life. Now, most of us in this room understand that truth when it comes to salvation. We know we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot be good enough, that we cannot undo even one of our sins, that we cannot stop sinning. And we know it is in Christ alone that we're saved. And so we come to him and we put our faith in him and he saves us. We don't save ourselves. We know and accept that truth. Yet yet I would venture to say that many of us think when it comes to living out the faith, we do that on our own, in our own strength. The Bible's very clear. We cannot live the Christian life in our own power. We can only live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah writes, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's what our text today tells us. So I'd like to ask you to join me once again in the book of Romans chapter 8, and more or less we'll be going and looking at uh, verses 1 through 14. Of course, Jim will have those texts up on either side of me. Now, two weeks ago, we saw that we cannot live the Christian life by keeping the law. Paul was really clear about that. He told us that although the law was a good thing, it was powerless to help us because of the sin which is in us. And the last verse of chapter 7 summarizes our condition as believers. And Paul wrote there, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here we have no doubt at all that Paul is talking about believers. But he concludes the chapter by saying, So then I myself... In my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You see, we want to do what's right, but our sin nature gets in the way all the time. You and I are not whole beings. 
that's uh, what much of chapter 8 addresses. How, being the creatures that we are, do we live the Christian life? And the chapter begins by making something very clear. If we are believers, if we have put our faith in Christ, if we have been born again, then even though we aren't whole beings, even though we're a kind of a split personality wanting to do good but sinning instead, even so, we are not under condemnation. Verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, And that's so important for us to understand. We spent our entire time together last week talking about that very truth. You see, if you feel as though you're under condemnation, you will never move forward in the faith. And you certainly cannot live the life God has called you to. And so now we have set the stage to answer the question, how do we live the Christian life? And the first thing we can say is that once we have put our faith in Christ, we live under a greater reality, or at the very least, we're given the opportunity to live under that greater uh, reality. And I'll explain what I mean by that later. But verse 2 introduces us that that idea, having just told us we're not under condemnation, Paul goes on to say, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Before you and I were in Christ, we were under a law. Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Sin brings death. That's a fact. This is reality. This is what the Bible teaches from beginning to end, from cover to cover. But when we come to Christ, however, we're set free from that law. It's through Christ, through our salvation, that we're set free. Now, we live under a different law. It's the law of the Spirit who gives life. It operates in a different way. It's not dependent on us. The life comes to us, and it comes from the Spirit. It's not a result of our own efforts. Maybe we can think of it this way. While an astronaut is here on this earth, he or she is subject to the same law of gravity that we are. They feel their own weight. If they trip, they fall. It takes more effort to go up the stairs than down, but they both require work. But once it's space, however, gravity no longer really matters. Well, maybe it does for keeping them in orbit, but, but from the astronaut's perspective, He's under a different set of laws, like the effects of momentum. He doesn't even have to think about gravity. That's the kind of change for us when we come to the faith. It's like that, only it's greater. It's not just different, it's greater. Then, before Christ, death was our future. Now, after Christ, life is our future. And verses 3 and 4 expand on that and amplify that truth. Paul writes, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son 
in a likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's how he condemns sin in the flesh. The death which always follows sin was placed on Jesus. And God condemns sin in that way. And what's condemned will soon pass away. But listen to what comes from that. The thing that results from our salvation in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a lot packed in there, so let me break it down. Living according to the Spirit means living in the realm of the Spirit or living in the power of the Spirit, or we could say it means walking in the Spirit. And if we live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met, or some translations put it, fulfilled in us. In other words, we are living the Christian life. Please understand, the righteous requirements of the law are met in us if we are living according to the Spirit. So this cannot be talking about the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us when we put our faith in Christ, when we were born again. That doesn't depend on how we choose to live at all. This is talking about us living our lives in a way which pleases God. I want to read a quote to you that I think will help understand what Paul is saying here. Those who live by the Spirit produce the fruits of the Spirit. A vine does not produce grapes by an act of Congress. They're the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which comes uh, uh, conforms to the standard of the kingdom, that is the righteous requirements of the law, is produced not by any demand, not even God's in his law, but it's the fruit of the divine nature which God, as a result of what he has done in and by Christ, has placed in us. In other words, we live the Christian life. The righteous requirements of the law are met in us when we walk in the power So we can live under this greater reality. We can live in the realm of the Spirit and His power, walking with Him, and so live in a way which pleases God, fulfilling His righteousness. At least we can. We have the opportunity to live that way. As it turns out, it's a choice that we make. We choose to live either in the Spirit or in the verse 5 says as much. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You set your mind on the things that the flesh desires, that's where you live. But choose to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you'll live in His power. Verse 6 tells us what each of those ways of living look like mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And death rules the mind of those who are in the flesh. Nothing good, nothing living, nothing which can bring wholeness dwells there. 
verses 7 and 8 and make that explicit. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Yeah, as long as you persist in living there, nothing good is coming your way. And you are certainly not pleasing God. That is not what he intends for his children. Living in the power of the Spirit, however, is life and peace. Life, and not just existence or length of days, but life, blossoming, growing, bearing, breathing in deep the fresh air of the kingdom, experiencing the goodness and love of God and love for others, and peace, a, a fullness, a, a completeness, a wholeness, not the, the kind of peace which consists merely of the absence of conflict in our broken existence, but a sense of knowing your purpose and knowing that you're fulfilling it. You see, the choice we're presented with is kind of like being given the choice between moping while you stand in a dark, dank room with a ceiling that's too low so that you can't even stand up straight in it, or going on a holiday in the mountains or at the beach with perfect weather and lots of friends. And you know, you can't hardly imagine why anyone would choose that dark place, can you? But we've all seen it, haven't we? Someone chooses sin at the cost of some other good thing. A man leaves his faithful wife for a woman who obviously isn't faithful. And she becomes a snare to his soul. A woman chooses drugs and takes the food off her children's plates and misses those amazing years which will never come again. Years when her children need her and her love and her guidance and her protection, all of which disappears in a blurry suit. Sin dresses up in a costume, and though deep down we know it's a lie, it's the very imitation of something we want, and we wade in. And we read from it just what we saw. See, the sad truth is, every one of us have made bad choices in our lives far too often in our lives. Maybe not to this extent, but we've all chosen sin. And because of that, because we've chosen the flesh, we can get to a place where we think, I just can't do it. I can't live the Christian life. I'm not any good at it. I'm always failing. To which Paul the Apostle says, Yes, you can. You can do it. You can live the Christian life because God lives in you. Verse 9. You who, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So do you belong to Christ? <laughs> have you put your faith in Him? Did you come to Him confessing your sins and asking Him to save you? Then you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Him, then His Spirit lives in you. You don't have to be ruled by the flesh. I mean, you can choose to live there. But you are in the realm of the Spirit. 
even if it doesn't feel like it, even if you haven't gotten it, your problem, my problem, our problem is, is we are trying to live this life in our own strength rather than in the power of the Spirit. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though the bo- your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives light because of righteousness. Is sin defeats us, but the Spirit who gives life, um, life He's in us. And, and, and He gives us life, and He does that because He is righteous, and He is in you, and because you belong to Him. The life, the ability to live the Christian life comes from the Spirit. Verse 11, And of the Spirit who raised Him, uh, who, uh, Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. There's a reference to the resurrection here, but what you need to see is we overcome the sinful nature by the spirit who lives in us. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one that has the power to overpower your You and I can live the Christian life because of the Spirit of God who lives in us. We belong to Him. We're in His realm. Where His power is and where we can walk with Him. You know, I once had someone tell me that uh, he couldn't do this one particular thing, which the Scriptures make clear that the Christian must do. He just couldn't do it. And I told him, I understood his struggle and encouraged him to keep working at it, all of which was okay. But I later realized what I should have said to him and what I would say to anyone else who told me they could not do something God says they need to do. I'd tell him what Paul says here. I would say this. Oh, yes, man. You are child. You belong to Jesus Christ. His spirit lives in you. I mean, it's true. Um, you can't do it in your own strength, but you don't have to. God has told you to do it. So you lean on him, and he will do it through you. You and I are not whole beings. since still lives in us. But once we put our faith in Christ... We're in a greater realm, the realm of the Spirit. We can choose to live in the flesh and all its intended sorrows. Or we can choose to walk in the Spirit. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who overcomes the sin in us. Now at this point, I want you to know that the text, um, Paul begins to introduce uh, uh, other aspects of the living in the Spirit, which also bear on living in the Christian life, which we're going to talk about uh, at another time. But he but he also, as he transitions to that, he closes out these uh, section in verses 12 through 14, where he reminds us of where our loyalties really lie. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. You and I, if we put our faith in Christ, we're obligated. But we don't owe the flesh anything. 
all it's ever done is bring grief in our lives. Just as the beginning of verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We don't know the flesh at the time of death. But we need to just put it to death. Our obligation, rather, is to God. He's the one who will enable you to put to death the flesh, as we see in the rest of verse 13. If, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds, the body will live. You see, it's not your strength. It's the Spirit enabling you. I mean, you have your part to play. I don't deny that. Sometimes it feels like it's all you. But, but if you're asking him for help, he's right there helping and, and the struggle that you feel at times like that is there only to make you more like Christ to, to strengthen you in your inner being. And when you find yourself tempted in some way, you lean into him and he gives you what you need to meet that occasion this time. Because the temptation will come again and when it does, the spirit is still there with you. You know, Paul's closing in this section is the Spirit is the one who leads us ultimately to victory. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. He will lead you step by step, day by day, through this life if only you'll let him. Now look, if we were going to summarize what we've learned here these last three weeks, we would say, first, we cannot live the Christian life by trying to keep the law. The law is powerless to help us because of sin dwelling in us. When we try to keep it, the focus is on us and on our strength and on what we can do, and we can do precious little. And as we try to live under the law, we find that we're continually failing. And as those failures mount up, as they surely will, they, they become disheartening discouraging, and that saps whatever little strength we might have had. Those who try to keep the law live in a constant state of failure. This is not how to live a Christian life. And then next we need to take to heart this truth. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though we still are not whole beings, though we still have sin dwelling in us, though we cannot keep the law in our own strength. Still, we're in Christ, and we are not under condemnation. We've been set free from that weight. We bear it no more. Christ took it away to the cross. He bore that burden which we couldn't bear. So take heart, old believer. You're not under condemnation. God himself does not condemn you, and if he doesn't condemn you, then you're free indeed. And I'd say to you, embrace finally realize that we can only live the Christian life in the power of the Spirit. His life in us bears fruit of that life. Fruit of the Spirit, yes, against which there is no law, or as Paul puts it here, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us. The Spirit leads us. He enables us to say no to sin. 
His life in us flows in us and through us and out of us. And as we keep in step with the Spirit, and instead of seeing our failures piling up as when we're under the law, we begin to see, to understand, to appreciate that we really are becoming more like Christ, living more like Him, that we are living the Christian life. Now, now maybe you're asking yourself, and you'd like to ask me, just how do I do this? How, how do I live in the Spirit? Well, you've just taken the first step. I mean, you now know this truth if you didn't know it before. And the truth Jesus said will set you free. Jesus taught extensively about the Holy Spirit to prepare his disciples for the Spirit's ministry in their life. He even said, it's good, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, meaning the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And then once you know this truth, you begin to learn and to pray and invite the Spirit into the various situations that you face with the goal of always keeping step with Him. And when you do do something right, maybe you face some situation that's been kind of difficult and, and you got through that thing and you thought, I should live like a Christian now. Have those experiences. It's time to turn around and say thank you because God was one who enabled you to do that. You didn't do that in your own strength. You did that because the Spirit lives in you. That's where we start. It's the beginning of an amazing journey. Before the world began, God had laid his plans. Plans to prosper us, not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. God knew that sin would enter our world and begin to destroy everything in its path. He knew there was no help in us, no hope for us, that left to ourselves, we were lost, we were undone. So God sent his son. That was his plan all along. His son took our sin on himself, died in our place, took our punishment. He did that so the barrier which stood between us and God would be done away with. He did that so that we could be forgiven and inherit that was God's plan involving his son, or at least part of it. But it was every bit as much his plan. Knowing that the strength is not in us for you and I to live the life of the believer in the power of the Holy Spirit. His life, living 